Hi, and welcome to the seventh episode of the State of the Net podcast. I'm Paolo Valdemarin. And I'm Jürgen Semple. And the sponsor this week is Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted... You said you were never going to have a sponsor, right? Yep. Ah, too bad. All right. <laughs> we, we don't have a sponsor, even Squarespace. They, they sponsor everybody, but no, well, no, it's not funny, us. isn't it? Because the same, the same culprits are on almost all the podcasts. It's quite funny. I don't quite know how all that works, but yeah. Well, you, you, we actually do use Squarespace. It's a pretty good product. I mean, I, I admire the fact that they were able to do what I tried to do twenty years ago and failed to do. Yes. But uh, we, but we also distinguish ourselves from other podcasts by not having Marilyn Mann on the podcast, which puts us in a very small minority as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are a niche podcast, and uh, <laughs> you must be a niche audience if you're listening to this. <laughs> so the news this week is that you finally got to gig driving. Yes, yes. Um, not a proper truck, though, sadly. The, the company I was working for had had somebody go sick, so it was a... A very big van, um, which was nonetheless challenging to get around some of the small villages that I was being sent off to deliver stuff in. Um, and yeah, just as I posted a blog post about it this morning, just the whole thing of how new everything is, what am I meant to do, how am I meant to respond to different events throughout the day, and you know, just trying to keep in your head all the legalities around driving time and distances and hours that you've worked. and. Um, there's quite a lot to take in on the first time, but uh, that that wasn't helped by the fact that I got pretty much stuck on the M25 for three hours, which is clearly going to be a, a key part of the uh, the experience. But yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've taken the first steps, as it were. Well, congratulations. We we all admire this effort. <laughs> so you were telling me that you got an interesting link to an article this week. Yeah, um, and very much in keeping with the topics that we tend to cover in the podcast that a friend of mine, Thomas Power, shared a link to a Gartner report on the importance of what they're calling digital ethics, which Siri mistranslated as digital ethics, which is probably a whole different topic. But um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, when the big companies like that start to use phrases uh, like digital ethics, it's almost a sign that they're becoming less useful than they used to be. But it's also significant, I think, that they've taken it as a big enough challenge to raise the flag on it, as it were. And, you know, it's really basically just, as I say, the things we talk about, the, the ethical challenges around the use of technology and who gets to decide what we do about them. Uh, so it's no bad, no bad thing that it's becoming a mainstream topic. Oh, I'm sure that it will come more and more mainstream. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know... As uh, more and more decision will be centralized uh, by uh, and, and managed by algorithms, somebody will need to decide what is what the what the algorithm think about us. <laughs> well, and and just to, the way you said that, but being centralized, the other topic we were touching on before we started was was politics, wasn't it? And the the way power can, can frighteningly centralize and coalesce around individuals never mind groups yeah well i was i mean this morning i was listening to the news and uh, uh, this is the day they announced the victory of uh, bolsonaro as president of brazil and uh, i have a colleague mm -hmm. in brazil we were discussing about uh, these election and uh, 
and I was thinking she was probably not going to be happy about the, these results. And uh, I was thinking just like, you know, lots of friends were not ha- happy about uh, Brexit, about Trump, uh, about uh, elections. And so this kind of got me down the how come that uh, more and more situations like these are happening, how come that uh, and even the news over the weekend you know the attack to the synagogue in america and uh, the bombs sent to obama and clinton i mean how come this uh, i mean i'm ca- uh, calling them fascists is a bit of a simplification but just for just to use a label how come all these fascist events and people and leaders are emerging now and where were they until a few years ago because i i think that most people would be attracted by these kind of ideas. Uh, I mean, it's it's probably something that comes very close to 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 the heart of of many. And uh, most people, most people. Okay, no, most mm. people. But I I think it's much more common than we would expect. The especially. Well, I think it certainly appears appeals to our basic instincts. Exactly, that's, exactly. That's I mean, it's there was a very interesting podcast I heard uh, a while back. To the, I'll put the link uh, in the description. Uh, to the son of uh, some very important member of the Ku Klux Klan who grew up in that family and then. Uh, went to university and changed his mind. And uh, Yes, I think I heard that. And he was yes. uh, he published a book recently and he was telling the story of how when he before his let's call it conversion was working in Florida I think to trying to get uh, votes, he would go and meet people and present these ideas without telling them who, where the ideas were coming from. And most people would actually relate to those ideas. So mm-hmm. If somebody would tell them this is the Ku Klux Klan, they would say, oh, I don't even want to hear. But they would just listen to the <laughs> ideas where, where yeah. you say, you know, you need to care. It, it's, it's, very, it's very basic. You want to care about your family. You want to care about people like you. You want to care about... I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I can see how you can get traction with these kind of ideas. It's not a majority, but it's probably a sizable amount of people. Yet, until very recently, there were no candidates. Uh, I mean, from the end of the war, where we had plenty of uh, experience with actual proper fascism, until uh, just a, 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 you know, probably 10 years ago, there was no, it was much harder to find these kind of ideas. They, they tended to be in a niche somewhere. Uh, but they they were struggling to go mainstream, and so I was thinking, is this because the gatekeeper to the public discourse was the press, and like it or not, coming from I mean they had their own set of ethical ideas, and they were sort of deciding who had access to the public opinion. The moment we 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 start replacing that with uh, with the uh, platforms that essentially do not have any type of that you know nobody running social media platform want to be a gatekeeper they actually try hard not to be and uh, and suddenly there is no ethics attached to anything and uh, and uh, look i i don't i, I don't want uh, look, i'm not i'm not drawing this conclusion i this is just 
pretty much me thinking in the shower. Uh, but you know, you kind of connect one thing to the other. I'm thinking, yes, of course, this is not the primary cause of it. But at the same time, I was wondering how much of this is, uh, if you want, even the, the uh, just a plain failure of the press or a plain failure of uh, whatever is helping our society to keep it together. So it comes no surprise to you that I have problems with that in as much as I it's a bit like religion you know we don't we don't we, we wouldn't know what good was if religions didn't tell us and that's nonsense you know we do know we we, we understand when we cause pain and distress and the consequences of it for ourselves and others and we don't need other people to tell us that um and likewise you know I'm very wary when I hear people saying oh wasn't it easier in the old days when the, the news told us the truth um, which I suppose is in a way what you're sort of saying, that without the news or the media or the press telling us a truth that steers us away from our baser instincts, then... No, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't implying that. I was, I was more saying, as a gatekeeper, they were just not allowing certain voices to reach you. So it was basically it was not a thing. If you had that, if you had some kind of extremist right. ideas, you probably would not easy have access. You you would not be. But heard. it still it still begs the question of why people aren't able to make the or are choosing to make a different decision about those people themselves. Just because the press aren't holding them back doesn't mean you suddenly start signing up to their views. Um, and of course, part you know as as we said before we started the podcast, the, this is a a whole bunch of different factors all happening at the same time. And even without the internet or the demise of the press's influence, arguably the liberal elite, whatever that means, who were trying to maintain that perspective on the world, left large swathes of the population behind them. Um, and it's those large swathes that are becoming attracted to a voice that appears to represent them. But I think... You know, and you hear this even when you hear sometimes Trump supporters being interviewed or that, that they're not stupid, you know, and they don't necessarily, you know, there's obviously minorities that we see on the telly that are clearly stupid, but most people who voted perhaps for Trump or for breakfast are not stupid. And they saw the fallacies in both sides, but made a choice that met their needs. And, um, you know, I think in the short term, that may give people like, Trump and the, and the chap in Brazil, leverage, but not not for long. And of course, again, this is the funny thing about the internet, isn't it? Because in some ways, okay, maybe it took some of the constraints away. Maybe it allowed us to find people who shared our views and amplified those views faster, which allowed people to gain traction faster. Blah blah blah. But that should also pertain to people thinking, "Hang on a minute, this isn't right. This isn't working. Maybe we should be, we should pull back. Maybe this isn't such a good idea." So I, I find it really interesting whether we will just find ourselves tramlining down a set of nightmarish decisions that ends up in a situation like the Second World War. But I don't, I, I, maybe I'm just too naive. I don't, I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, something that, for example, happened again uh, this week was that uh, in the aftermath of, uh, I think, the attack on the synagogue in the US, 
there was one social network which was uh, I think that PayPal and uh, GoDaddy and a whole bunch of major providers just stopped providing services to the social network which essentially disappeared mm-hmm. because uh, this is where a lot on the anti-Semite conversation was happening and so I mean apparently this guy who went and shot people was an active member in, in this group right so again of course we cannot uh, blame i mean it's uh, it just happened it doesn't make any sense to blame the internet and i'm not even sure we should blame any platform it's you know responsible people who happen to have that uh, conversation in yeah. a place but is uh, enabling that conversation does enabling those conversations bear any responsibility? <laughs> because, because, you know, the, be, because if we go for the everybody is uh, essentially an intelligent uh, and good human being, regardless of uh, politics or gods, then, you know, that should not be a problem. We should let everybody do anything. And, uh, you know, I know that the anarchist in you like this idea it's as much though an optimist in the sense that in the face of all the evidence you know just thinking about Israel and the way the Jews treat the Palestinians and you would have thought after what happened in the second world war they might have behaved you know it's just gobsmacking the way humans seem able to replicate appalling behaviour over and over again so um, but I do think at this point uh, we, all, we, we, we also need to piss off the Arabs so that I was, they probably <laughs> I was going to say as I, as I said that I thought I'm probably, yeah, well, I can't imagine so, it. Maybe, we, maybe we should maybe can I suggest some censorship <laughs> well but actually see, it's interesting I've just finished reading an amazing book by uh, an, an American psychologist who's now in her late 80s who survived uh, Auschwitz, and an amazing lady, and an amazing ability to forgive, basically, and to go back and realise that she was carrying around, and many people carry around all these memories and blame and, and aggression and anger and whatever else, but the only person who's paying any price is them. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here, that we... we have tended to have philosophies or religions or whatever that have externalised issues or solutions. You know, God's out there, he'll sort it for me. Uh, My boss is out there, he'll sort it for me. And of course that's what's meant that we haven't learned to uh, manage ourselves well. Um, And I still remain optimistic that if if we made, if we put more focus on that rather than giving up responsibility, then there's more chance of this complex organism working. And I mean, I did a post about this again since the last podcast where I was saying, you know, that nature seems to manage incredible complexity and effectiveness and resilience on the basis of each individual animal or cell or part of the network, basically knowing what it's meant to be doing and doing it in consort with others. We could do the same. Well, I guess that nature also gets rid of a very large amount. I mean, there is much more forms of life have been extinct in history of the universe then they are still around if somebody doesn't work it just kills down which is probably what it's doing with us anyway well I mean and 
Well, so I, I, I'm going to touch lots of buttons on this podcast, but I mean, that to me also seems like a fallacy that we think we're different and should be different. Oh, no, absolutely. That's, I'm saying, as players of nature, yeah. basically, they might have just pulled the plug on us. I mean, nature will survive. Nature will exist even after, uh, you know, global warming and uh, maybe the end of humankind. And it is really interesting what it is about us as a species that makes us unable, unwilling to operate on that basis. We keep meddling. I mean, that was the point of the post. You know, instead of allowing a complex system to emerge and operate quite effectively, we feel that we need to be in control. And this is true in teams and management and business countries. It's that getting in the way of the thing operating, which can have, you know, can be difficult. I mean, yes, people suffer, people, but then they suffer and die anyway. And, and sometimes in mass numbers by by our current means of trying to solve things. Um, and it's just, it's just again, that feeling that the internet was about enabling, well, originally about enabling the cells in a network. And I still think that that's, it's, that's the prospect that it still holds out and we're, we're not even near allowing it to happen yet. But, so, I, I, I finished reading recently the last uh, Yuval Noah Harari book. The, uh, oh, I haven't read it yet. Is it good? Uh, well, it's the third book. I was going to say it's so the third if, book if, written in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, if you have read the first two, it's, uh, it, it is again, it, this one is titled 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and uh, it still reiterates some of the things. It, it does have some very interesting new ideas. Uh, but of course, one of the main themes that is com- is present in this book was what makes us, what sets us apart as a species, is the fact that we tell stories, and yep. we believe in the stories that we tell. Yep. And just to make an example, if you haven't read the book, the idea is that uh, you can, in order to collaborate with other members of your species, you need to trust them. And you can only, but you can only know a very limited amount of uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. So, how do you trust somebody you don't know? You can trust somebody you don't know if you both believe in the same story. Mm-hmm. So, for example, religion is a story. If we both believe in the same gods, we can trust each other because we have similar ethics. Yep. Uh, another example, uh, probably the most successful story of all, is money. You can pretty much go to anybody on the planet and hand them a wad of cash, and especially if they're dollars, they will understand perfectly what you mean. And, of course, the value of that money is based on the fact that we both believe in the story that those pieces of paper have some value. They don't. There is no inherent value in, in, in the piece yeah. of paper. So... Uh, as you were as you were saying, you know what sets us apart. Well, Noah Harari answer is uh, stories. We can tell stories. We can invent stories, and most of all, we can believe in stories. Now, maybe what is interesting to think about is uh, how the stories we tell and how the the way we distribute the stories through the internet has changed the dynamics of uh, of uh, 
how we we interact and possibly how the uh, our our relationship work and interesting enough uh, he present three big problems for the future the three big problems in his idea is uh, nuclear weapons uh, of which there are still too many around and nobody is really doing very much to 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 manage them uh, ai Nobody is uh, really figuring out uh, what to do with uh, the future of how to manage the future of uh, the ethics related to AI and global warming, saying that uh, we need to tackle this, otherwise it's going to be a serious problem. And he's saying why we're not thinking about these two problems enough. So he, he gives us a reason, he's asking why rather than telling why. Well, he is. He has some 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 arguments, and he's describing something around it. But essentially, at least my reading of it was that uh, the main problem is that we're focusing on all too many things. And what these three problem, I mean, something that I remember is that what these these three problems have in common is that uh, they're all prob they're all global problems. They're all problems yeah. can only be solved if. Uh, with a very, very large effort. It's not something where, while it, there is a, but also in previous book, he actually has this uh, idea of how nationalism actually has been a force for good in, in many situations. And, you know, it is true. It actually formed many of the modern institutions. Well, Italy, Germany, yep. But uh, at the same time, Nationalism now is becoming is is a is a tendency again. There is the, there is this idea of uh, uh, there are, there, were, there was some interesting comments about this and how it, it is sexy in a way because uh, because uh, it makes people feel good, but uh, it is pulling us in the wrong direction because in order to solve these big problems, the only way is to collaborate on a global level. So that's interesting because I met a friend who's connected with some Swedish philanthropist who's trying to, to suggest new global frameworks, decision-making bodies to try and address that problem. And again, you know, it's interesting, and just listening back again to you talk about the stories and things, and, you know, as an individual and, you know, with both of us getting interested in meditation and mindfulness, part of that is becoming more aware of the stories that we're constantly telling ourselves, never mind the ones that get out of our own heads, and how unhappy we can make ourselves with those stories and how they make us behave sometimes dysfunctionally or, or, or unproductively with other people. And... It, as, as you were describing the stories, I was thinking, well, yeah, we, we will probably never not tell stories. And in some ways, there's a risk of things becoming meaningless without stories. But it's almost like we just shouldn't take the stories too seriously. And it's when we start to take them seriously to the point of fighting to the death over my stories better than yours that they get in, we, we get in trouble. And if we just understood that it's a sort of working hypothesis and the only reason we have the stories is so we can rub shoulders together. And, but if your story is different from mine, then here we can have a chat about it. And, you know, it, it's because we need more practice. And even just the distancing, even just the practice of meditation, allowing you to distance yourself from that constant 
um, rumination that's going on in your head. We sort of we could almost do with that globally, just everybody stepping back from these very destructive stories that that were seduced by. And I think you're right. I mean that that's partly why the right is successful because here's a strong character telling you that they'll look after you and this is the truth and just it means you can sort of go, okay then, and it all sorts itself out, you know, which of course is not true. Um, but that's that's the attraction of it. And of course they manipulate the storytelling and they use the techniques. So yeah, so it's interesting because again when you were talking about the internet, whether it's different or not, and I was thinking about memes and you know the way we all used to talk about memes in the early days and there's sort of almost a biological viral metaphor for the way stories propagate around the internet. Um and I and I have varying degrees of comfort and discomfort with people trying to get good at that. You know, like I heard again about somebody the other day who was working on a word of mouth campaign, and it just always feels manipulative as soon as people start talking about that. I actually think that Noah Harari, while promoting the book, he wrote uh, an article uh, essentially saying we have been doing fake news uh, in all history of yeah. uh, humankind i mean it's it's they have always been fake news it's not new you know yep. so i think that uh, probably rather than being so upset about uh, you know the, the the new fake news being mindful that uh, everything is a story yes. and that uh, yes. and that uh, you know sometime the story might be more related to the truth than other times but in any case it will only be a story no story can ever be the full truth well isn't this the strength of the scientific method as opposed to religions because religions will try to maintain that their story is the truth is the one story is the only true story whereas science will think well this is a currently productive and working hypothesis but we'll not take it too seriously because something new might come along and then we'll just adapt the story to make it make more sense. Even stepping one step farther away from it, I mean, you know, I'm perfectly fine with the fact that we both believe in the story of money as long as we both know that it is a story. Yes. It's, uh, it's uh, I think that probably we're not aware enough that so many of these things are stories. Yes. And if we were more mindful and and by the way uh noah harari is a is a is a big believer in mindfulness yes and uh he he meditates two hours a day and for months at a time on on retreats yeah yeah so you know part of this could be we all need to be how do we all get more mindful how do we get more people to start appreciating that uh what they see is not uh, the whole truth. What they see yes. is just a facet, it's just a story. I mean, from that point of view, I guess, and I'm just, I mean, not that we I've been doing anything different than thinking about all along today. Um, <laughs> maybe showing you the what is going on behind the curtain is uh, is interesting. I mean, what Facebook is doing with the adverti- with political advertising, for example, showing mm-hmm. you who is running that campaign and what other ads they have been running, is the kind of transparency that basically you know is breaking that fourth wall, and you're saying, "Oh, yeah. hold on a second, yeah. this is a story. This totally. is totally truth." So that is... so that seems to get. I, w- I was thinking about writing another post about in the. 
in the social network we put in inside the BBC, there was always people wanting to sell us tools or measurement tools or reporting tools. And my stance was always, if the tools help the whole network to see what's going on and what cause and effect is, then I'm all for it. If it's for a small group of people to get to watch the rest of us and then make decisions about us, you're not getting anywhere near it. And it's the same sort of principle, isn't it? That if... Um, and you know, transparency is a, a buzzword, and you can you can, you know it creates challenges. It's not a trivial thing to try and aspire to. But I do think that if you make the cells in the network aware of the operation of the network and what the consequences of their actions are, then it at least gives them a secure basis on which to make a decision. You know, spiked it back again to my chapter in the book called "We've All Got a Volume Control on Mob Rule." You know, we need to be given the means and the tools to make better informed decisions as we, as we take actions, as we open our mouths and say things. And I think you're right. I think a more common acknowledgement of the way, and this is all, all that Buddha did two and a half thousand years ago, was worked out the fact that we make ourselves unhappy by making up stories and then clinging to them and fighting over them and, and, and pretending that they're actual reality. Um, being more aware of that would be a good start. And, uh, I think that on this note, we can start wrapping up today's episode, which was uh, strangely political. But I think you know, we, pr which, we pressed lots of very ill advised buttons on this one. Yeah. I, I think we managed to piss off pretty much every group out there that could be offended by, by our thoughts. Well, you're, you're sort of assuming that the numbers of people who listen to this can aspire to be in groups, Paolo. Yeah, well... Both, both, both of them hardly qualify as a group. <laughs> you know, it might be what will get us viral. This is true. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, thank you for leaving your comments, uh, giving us feedback, uh, liking the podcast. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please do recommend it to your friends. See you next time. Thank you.